This morning, I wanted to talk to you about uh, just a thought here this morning, which I'll get to in a few moments. But uh, I was doing some research, and I discovered that uh, Guinness World Records has recorded uh, this, you know, the Guinness World Records, you can find pretty much anything in there. You can find the, the longest fingernails, the longest hair, the longest, all the things in the world. You can find the person who has gone the highest in the sky, all the craziest things you could possibly think of. And one of those crazy things that I discovered, which was just really uh, interesting to me and why it would happen and the context of why it would happen, was this thought, uh, the longest table in the world. Now, most of us probably, if we have a dinner table, it's about uh, somewhere around four to six feet. Some of us might have a little one, a bigger one for our larger family gatherings. But did you know that the longest table in the world was organized by the capital of Egypt, uh, Cairo, and it was 10,465 feet and seven inches long. And for all of us who have to use an app on our phone to figure out what that really means, that's just short of two miles long. You think about that, that's crazy. That would be as if you started here at our driveway and you put tables all the way along the route to city center. Now just imagine if you had to pass the salt all the way down to the guy at the end. What a walk that would be, right? It's an amazing thing to think about. And in Egypt, that table was used to serve 7,000 people. And, you know, the thought of a two-mile-long table is incredible, let alone all the, the, the work that has to be done to put the plates, forks, napkins, chairs that had to be set up and just all the tablecloths and everything that had to go into that. And if you go and see a picture, I, I, I didn't get a picture because it doesn't really do it justice. It's just a picture of a, a table with a black tablecloth over it. But if we could see the aerial view, it would really probably wow us. But it's an amazing thought to consider that there was a table that was two miles long. And others have tried that to get come close to that, and there have been others recorded in Portugal and uh, other places around the world about the longest table ever. But what if I told you that the longest table was two times longer than the table in Egypt? What if I told you that the longest table ever was four times, ten times longer than the table in Egypt? Hundred times longer than the table in Egypt. Our minds begin to get to a point where we can't even picture how that looks, what that looks like, how that's set up. It's not a, uh, and let me clarify here, it's not tables like set up. There's an individual table over here. It's an individual table over here. It's a long, continuous one table. It's connected the whole way. But did you know that the longest table ever was recorded in heaven? Guinness World Records doesn't have anything on the table that is recorded in heaven. And the Bible talks about that John had this heavenly vision about a table. And why John had a vision of a table is so important to the whole of Scripture, and we're going to talk about it this morning. But John described this heavenly table, and I'm just going to kind of summarize it for you today to save us some time, that he got before the Lord, that God was taking him this vision of heaven and all the things that he would see, and he had this vision of this table. And the Bible says that, go, that a voice of a great multitude was before him. And then later John wrote, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And what John described was a multitude of people in heaven and our minds can't even really consider how big of a multitude that is. But we know from John's visions and others' visions in the Bible, it's a sea of people, way more than 7,000 people. And that there is a table for all of those people to be sitting at. That's an incredible thought. And beyond that is an incredible thought. If it's going to be that big, how big even is heaven? An incredible thought to think that the table is a special place. We know that to God, the table is important. And you're going to see here this morning that it's, it's more than just a table. It's more than just a crafted wood table that we might all sit at. It's bigger than that. The Bible talks about that when God began to give pictures to Moses of building the tabernacle and others to the building of the temple, that the tabernacle and the temple was supposed to be a picture of heaven on earth. And we know that in the the inner place of the tabernacle, in the temple, the Holy of Holies, that was where God's presence rested over that Ark of the Covenant that was used to keep those precious things, those lessons that God had taught them. And one of the things that was in that place was the Bible tells us the table of showbread. You might think, oh, Charlie, this is, this is kind of com- uh, confusing to me. But I want you to see that to, to God, what's important here this morning. That right next to the presence of God was the table that would be used to give bread to the priest. It would be used to give them sustenance and give them life. And then later, we're going to see here in a few moments, Jesus would further elaborate upon this image of the table. And this morning, I want to talk to you about this thought, the longest table ever. Because to Jesus, the table is special. It's not just special. It's an event that he is looking forward to. To Jesus, on his earthly ministry, we see him talking about the table over and over and over again. And we're going to see some of that here important. And the thought is this around table fellowship. That Jesus took every opportunity he could to sit down with his followers, to eat with them, to to be with them, and talk with them. Here he is at the great, uh, the last supper that we all know, the picture that was painted. Leonardo da Vinci painted this picture of Jesus at the last supper. Jesus being with his precious disciples. And how, what an ironic thought that to Jesus, the last thing that he would do with his disciples before he was crucified was sit down at a table with them. Because it was to be a picture of what was to come. That they were seeing Jesus sitting at the table with him. And the next thing they would see him is dying. And the thought was this, is that you're going to see me crucified, but I don't want that to be the last image in your mind. I want the image of sitting at a table with me to be the last image in your mind. Because he told them this as he was sitting at the table with them. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus was so, just for a lack of a better words, obsessed with the thought of being at a table with his people. And if Jesus was so obsessed with this thought, it must mean that there's something important about the table. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he talked about the table over and over again. He has a parable of a table. He has multiple parables about a table. He sits at a table. This was an important piece of Jesus' ministry. Jesus was not so much concerned about setting world records or even the table itself 
but it is the act of being at the table with the people he loves and bringing us all together and sitting with us. That's what excites Jesus. That's what motivates Jesus. The fact that Jesus could bring tax collectors and doctors to sit down at the same table, the fact that Jesus could bring Pharisees and sinners to sit down at the same table, to put aside their divisions and their hostilities toward each other and sit down with the one who is the centerpiece of it all, Jesus himself, that is an exciting thought of what heaven is to be. This heavenly table that John described, we don't know exactly what he saw, but I'm sure that we know from other visions and images of heaven that if he could describe it, he would tell us the people that were sitting at the table based upon Revelation chapter 7 was that there were people of every nation sitting there. There were people of every walk of life sitting there. There were poor people there. There were rich people there. There were people who had the roughest of life and the people who had the best of life. And they were all sitting around the table and you know what they were focused on? Jesus. They were sitting at the table with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. How could you not be focused on Jesus? It was a wonderful sight. And John chapter 6 tells us this thought as Jesus begins to explain to his followers a little bit more about the thought of the table. And he tells them in John chapter 6 verse 28, they ask him a question. This, and I want you to note here that there is this thing that's happening here in John chapter 6. There's this crowd that has been following Jesus. And this is just an amazing thought to me. As the Bible tells us in the earlier parts of John chapter 6, he has just fed 5,000 people. And this crowd is glued to him. They can't get enough to him. As a matter of fact, Jesus gets in a boat and goes to the other side. And somehow they go all the way around to get to Jesus. Because in that moment, they watched Jesus feed them. They followed him. 5,000 people, that was just the men. And not even numbering all the other people that were there. That was an exciting crowd of people. And they had been fed by Jesus. All the life that they needed, the sustenance that they needed. And they just kept following him. You know, that's, that's, that's true about Jesus' ministry to us. There's something about Jesus that's captivating. There's something about when you're in the presence of Jesus, you just can't get enough. There's something about when Jesus ministers to you, you want more of it. There's something about when Jesus speaks, you just want to hear, what else do you have to say? It's like Mary and Martha, or Martha sitting at the feet of Jesus. Or Mary, in this picture of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. I just want to listen to all he has to say. There's something about that when Jesus speaks, it's life. It's the word of God. It's exactly what our souls need. So we long for more. And this is what was happening in this crowd. They began to ask him questions. They wanted to see more signs and more wonders among him. And they said in verse 28, What must we do to perform the works of God? What must we do to perform the works of God? And Jesus answered them this, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who has sent me. You, have, you believe in him whom he has sent. Can I tell you today that the work of God is not building bigger buildings. The work of God is not building a, a huge congregation of people that just gather in one place. That's not the work of God. The work of God is this, is that you believe in him who he has sent. Whether it's a gathering of five people who believe in him or a gathering of 5,000 people that believe in him, they are both the work of God and God is going to bless both of them. 
The work of God in our day and age has been convoluted to mean so many different things, but may we get back to the basics of what it means today. To do the work of God is this, is that you and I might believe in Jesus and that he was sent here for you and I by God so that we might live in him and have life more abundantly. Just like we sang today, the blood of Jesus, it saved us, it redeemed us, and now we've been set free to live in him life and life more abundantly. In all this work that we're going to do in the future day and age, and in the past 50 years, the American church has wrestled with what is the work of God? Is it doing this thing or that thing? But may we just remember today, in the future, in all the work that we're going to do, it's this, that people might believe in Jesus. That's the work of God. That's it. You say, Charlie, that sounds so simple. That sounds too easy. That's the point. It's supposed to be simple. It's supposed to be easy. If we make the gospel so complicated that it's all of these different elements and things, then we miss the point and we, keep, we become a stumbling block to the gospel. But if we can just remember the simplicity of the gospel is this, that you and I believe in him who he, whom God has sent, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Jesus goes on to tell them in verse 32. Very truly, I tell you, they, or let me give some paraphrase here. They, they made a remark to him about how they would go out into the, when they were in the wilderness, they had bread for themselves. And they made a remark about how Moses provided for them. But God, Jesus responds to them, very truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven, and watch this, and gives life to the world. Gives life to the world. And they said to him, I love their response here. Boy, we need this response today. Sir, give us this bread always. Isn't this the dilemma in our world? Is there are so many people looking for life in everything possible when the life, we know that the life that is needed, the thing to really sustain our souls is Jesus. There is this kind of thought today that the enemy uses and he just gets us chasing after this thing or that thing. Maybe if I go, maybe if I go talk to this group of people, they'll give me life. Or maybe if I go do this thing, it'll give me life. But today may we be reminded that the life and the thing that all of us are longing for in our souls is Jesus. And he is the only one who can fill that void inside all of us. There is no thing in this world, there is no person in this world that can fill that void, that thing that we are all longing for. It is only Jesus. He gives life to the world Jesus said to them I am the bread of life and whoever comes to me watch this will never be hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty you say to me Charlie well, I've been believing in the Lord for some years and there have been some days I've been hungry and there have been some days I've been thirsty but you know what Jesus is talking about here is a spiritual hunger. Amos talked about in the days when he was prophesying. He said there's going to come a day when there's a famine for the word of the Lord. And what he was talking about is this very thought right here. Is there are people who there are longing. There, are, there is a longing for something more spiritually and they can't find it anywhere. And he's telling them if they will just come to me, I will give their souls all they need. More than our spiritual, let me give you a thought here today, more than our spiritual, our physical needs today is our spiritual needs. More than even our own sustenance in our own bodies is our spiritual need. 
Because apart from our body, the Bible teaches us, is a soul. And our soul is going to go on for eternity. And so if that's the case, then our spiritual man comes first and has to have the attention that we need. And so Jesus promises them, I will be the one who will give them all that they need. And so now let's come back to the thought of the table. In Jesus' earthly days, the table was a place of cultural significance. And I want to just give you just some stories here about what the table looked like in Jesus' day. Jesus called out the Pharisees multiple times because they sat at the table and they went to the place of honor. In our, in our day and age, that might, just, that might be like taking a seat at the head of the table, uh, supposing that that was the place of honor. I know it's not always for all of us, but just to kind of carry the same thought in the context of what Jesus was ministering in. Jesus called them out because they would immediately go ahead and sit at that place of honor, thinking that they were the special guest at the table, all along missing that the one who they were sitting with was the special guest. Jesus was so invested at being at the table with the people that he loved, that he went out of his way, that he invited the most unlikely guests to sit with him. Sinners. And this made the Pharisees mad. If you are really the Son of God, if you are really holy and perfect and blah, 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 all the things that they could possibly say, why would you be sitting at the table with these people who don't look anything like you, whose lives are torn apart, and they're doing things that are detestable to God, unrighteous and unlikely, all of the things that they could possible excuses. And when confronted with this, you know what Jesus said to them? Those who are well, they don't need a doctor. But those who are sick... And I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It is such a lesson to our culture today that oftentimes we will go out of our way to avoid sitting at the table with certain people. But Jesus went out of his way to sit at the table with those very people. Jesus made it his it actually mission on the earth to be at the table with those people. To live an earthly life that was consumed with inviting people who were broken, who were sinners, who were tax collectors. They were despised by culture. They were despised by people. He invited women to sit at the table who were completely put to shame because of their whatever their sin and their problems. And even Jesus looked at them and instilled value in them. And there was nobody that Jesus that came to the cheap table that Jesus was sitting at that he did not invest his love into and it's a message and a lesson to all of us here today that the table is an important picture in Jesus's ministry and it's an important picture of God's love for you and I when one Pharisee sat at the table with Jesus he did like they all did and he took his place of honor he sat, this is a separate story from the one I just told you. He took his place of honor at the table. And he sat down and he did all of the things that he was supposed to do. And I can just imagine these Pharisees. They just, they just sound like snobs to me. And however, this woman came in and obviously she had a reputation that went before her of being a sinner. And isn't that the worst thing when you have a reputation, when you're broken like this? And you can imagine, especially in Jesus' day and age, when you've got a reputation that I'm, I'm a sinner, I've done all these terrible things in the world, and the Pharisees knew it, who this woman was, and there she was. And do you know what she did? Unlike the Pharisees, she brought the most expensive item she owned, and she poured it on Jesus. And unlike the Pharisees, she took his feet and she began to wash them as was the custom in Jesus' day. 
And if that, if that was not enough, when she ran out of water, her tears began to be the water that would wash his feet. And if that was not enough, she was not privileged to have a towel at the table because she was not welcome to sit at the table. So what she did, when she didn't have a towel and she didn't have anything else to use like the Pharisees did, she used her hair to wash his feet. Because there was something about being at the table with Jesus that was special. There was something to that woman that could say, I know that there's a Pharisee here, but I also know that there's Jesus sitting here. And I know I'm a sinner, but he loves me. And she just began to pour out her love upon Jesus. And Jesus made a remark about her and said this, She has shown great love. Jesus' idea of the table is about us sharing our love with Him and Him sharing His love with us. Why? Because He is the bread come down from heaven. He is the one who gives life to the world. The Pharisee had the picture wrong all along. He thought it was about just sitting at the table and having a conversation. But he did not realize that what it was about was that the bread is Jesus. And he's here for this woman so that she might have life and have life more abundantly. It was about being at the centerpiece of the table was Jesus. It had, no, it had nothing really to do with the table itself. It was about being in the presence of the one who can give me all that I need, the sustenance, the strength, the healing, the restoration, the forgiveness. And the, Jesus went on to say that he that is forgiven of much will love much. Why? Because Jesus is the one who gives life to the world. And here was a culture that said, she is not welcome here. Do not let her in the room. Jesus, what are you doing talking to her? And you know what Jesus did? He spat in culture's face and said, I love this woman. I will forgive this woman. And I will honor this woman because she has loved me. May we never get caught up in the cultural trends that go about neglecting people and overlooking people that was common in Jesus' day and is often common in our day. Because in the eyes of Jesus, a woman who was just going about that maybe many people might have overlooked, Jesus put his eyes on her and honored her and said she has shown great love. This was a custom in Jesus' ministry. As he would go on to say in Luke chapter 14, which I want to take you here and read for a few moments, is that there was this picture in Jesus' heart about inviting people to the table because he knew that if he could just get them to the table, it was the place where he could share his love with them. The Bible says in Luke chapter 14, this was another occasion where Jesus just happened to be eating with the Pharisees. Now we've read three stories where Jesus is sitting at the table with the Pharisees. And you will notice that in every story, it was never about the Pharisee. It was always about the broken person who was at the table. There was always a religious leader present when Jesus was doing his work. Isn't that interesting? That here were the Pharisees who claimed to be the people of religion, who claimed to be the ones who were administering grace and doing the work of God, but they never even acknowledged one person who needed the gospel the most in their midst. But Jesus did. And on one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader, the Pharisees, to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. And Jesus knew it. They were watching him closely. And just then, just then, the Bible says, Luke is good at putting details. Just then, in front of him, was a man who had dropsy, a man who was lame, who had a, a, an ailment for how, and who knows how long. 
And he began to make it, began to point to his love for him and show these Pharisees in the middle of them, here is this man, you've, you've overlooked him, it's the Sabbath, he's not supposed to be receiving the work of God, but guess what? Jesus healed him. Right in the middle of all the things that was happening, Jesus noticed two errors of the Pharisees on his way to this meal that sometimes can happen in our walk with the Lord and our ministry and the work of God on the earth. Is that he, he noticed two errors. And the first one was this, is that they overlooked the need right in front of them. They overlooked the person who needed the gospel most right in front of them. Here was a man right in front of Jesus, the Bible says. The language is clear. Right there in the middle of Jesus' presence was a man who needed hope, who needed healing. And you know what Jesus did? Just like Jesus always did, he healed him. It didn't matter if it was a Sabbath. It didn't matter who was present. Jesus healed him because he needed healing. The second thing that Jesus went on to do is that he began to point out to them in John, or Luke chapter 14, verse 7. He, the Bible says, it's interesting how Luke records the thoughts of Jesus here. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. Once again, watch how the Pharisees always gravitate to the place of honor. They always self-promote themselves as if they are something to be talked about. And when he noticed how the guests chose the place of honor, he began to teach them a parable. And this is a parable I want to share with you today and a few things that we can learn about the table and inviting others to the table. The message is simple as this, is that God has invited us to sit and commune with him, spiritually speaking, to be at the table, welcoming, uh, welcoming us by his love. And therefore, God has called us just like that. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Just as he's called us to love him, he's called us to go and love our neighbor. And so he gives them some words about how to love their neighbor at the table. He tells them, uh, firstly, in verse 11, he goes in and he tells them all the, about their sitting at the place of honor. And in verse 11, he says, for all who exalt themselves, guess what? They're going to be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. He teaches them about two things we're going to see here, humility and hospitality. And it's a thing that gets lost in Christian ministry nowadays. It's a thing that gets mixed up in the jumble of programs and just agendas and just routines and just going through the motions is humility and hospitality. But Jesus said to them, this was some of the most important elements when you are inviting people into your midst to sit at the table with them. It was a key teaching in Jesus' ministry to his followers. And the first thing is this, is humility. And he teaches them this, is that humility is not supposing ourselves as the guest of honor and instead esteeming others greater than ourselves to sit with us. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I wonder how often in our lives, in our ministries, in our works for the Lord that we are inviting people and humbling ourselves and not esteeming ourselves as the guest of honor but inviting others who we esteem as the guest of honor. Jesus did. He goes on to tell them, secondly, this, in verse 12, he says this, he said also to the one who invited them, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, watch what he says to them, do not invite your friends. What? Jesus said, don't invite your friends, don't eat dinner with your friends. He says, don't invite your brothers. What, my brother? 
Don't invite your relatives. I can't even have dinner with my relatives, my family. He says, don't invite or your rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. He says this, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid where? At the resurrection of the righteous. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about what John saw that we talked about a few moments ago. There is this banquet table and all of these people are sitting there and he said, it's not about the reward here and now. It's about the reward that's going to come at that banquet, at that great table at the marriage supper of the Lamb and that's going to be the reward. You and I gathering together and the reward of heaven is Jesus and there is going to be such an ecstatic nature and joy about all of this and the words that come from the Father. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You didn't invite people that could repay you. You invited people that couldn't repay you, just like I did on earth. And because of that, that is something that is honorable to Jesus. And it teaches us this, is that hospitality, not hotel hospitality, not restaurant hospitality, biblical hospitality is going out of our way to invite those who cannot repay us for our hospitality given to them. To Jesus, this is hospitality. Hospitality is ensuring that when I give something that I ensure they can't give it back to me. Because it's not about the reward that they can bless me with. It's about the reward that Jesus is going to bless us with when we're sitting at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now you'll note here that Jesus taught this sequential. He taught them first about humility and then he taught them secondly about hospitality. And as with Jesus, everything is always done on purpose. So why did he do that? Humility must precede hospitality. You can't be hospitable without humility. Humility must precede hospitality, lest our hospitality becomes nothing more than a facade to make ourselves look good to others. And listen, isn't that southern hospitality? We're, it looks great on the outside, but is it really reflected in the heart? And so this is why Jesus tells them, make sure that before you become hospitable, humility is in your heart. Otherwise, your hospitality, it's just a facade. It's just a wall on the outside. It's like the Pharisees were. They were whitewashed tombs, but on the inside was dead men's bones. There was nothing, there was no pure motives in the heart. And it is a language for us in our lives and all that we do that what excites Jesus the most is the table. And what excites Jesus the most is that you and I are going to sit down at the longest table ever. And it is going to go on for miles and miles and miles and our eyes cannot see it nor behold it. And it's going to be the place where you and I are not sitting there focused on even the food really. It is going to be the fact that Jesus, the bread of heaven, the one who gives life is there in our midst. And that is going to be the most exciting thing about it now. And therefore God has likewise called us in our earthly ministry and work to invite people to the table. To develop a lifestyle of humility and hospitality. To making sure that we are going out of our way to be humble. To make sure that we're not promoting ourselves and that we're going out of our way to invite people to sit down with us, to come to the Lord that, that, that can't repay us, that can't give us anything. But because why? Because Jesus loves them. Because Jesus adores them. Because Jesus honors them. And he goes on and tells them in Luke chapter 14 as the musicians come, 
And he tells them this great parable about a great banquet on all the people that he invited there. And you know what? He invited somebody who had bought a piece of land. He said, nope, I can't come. He invited someone who had bought some new possessions, five oxen. And guess what he said? I can't come. He invited someone who had just got married and thought, wouldn't it be great to invite that couple? They could come and celebrate with us. And guess what they said? We can't come. And you know what the, that, the parable of the master said? Well, you know what? Go invite. Go to the highways. Go to the alleyways. Go to the places where no one else is going and compel them to come and sit down with me. And the Bible says this about them. Sir, what you have ordered has been done and there is still room. There is still room. And then the master said to the slave, go out into the roads and the lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. You know what excites Jesus? Is that there is this great big house and he's got room for so many people. So many people in our world who just need the bread of life, the bread come down from heaven, just like that woman who was caught up in her sin, looking for something, looking for an answer, and right there in her midst was Jesus. This wasn't the last time Jesus would say this. He would later say in John chapter 14, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and there's more than enough room for all of you. There's more than enough room because the idea of being at the table with his followers, communing with us and laughing with us and celebrating with us is the most exciting thing for Jesus. Why? Because Jesus loves you. He loves me. And he loved us so much so that he decided to come down as the bread come down from heaven, broken for us, the body broken for us upon a cross so that you and I, in all of our needs and looking for what do I need for my soul, he could be all that we need. He is our sustenance and our strength. And this morning, I just want to encourage you today that Jesus is the bread come down from heaven for you and I. And you have need in your life. You're wondering, I feel empty in my soul. I feel like there is something lacking. I am missing love. I am just searching for all of the things. I've tried to do this. I've tried to do that. Can I just encourage you, my friend, that Jesus is the life that you need. And He is the bread for you and I because He loves you. And He's made space for you at the longest table ever. And the amazing thing is, is at the longest table ever, is that He's gone out of His way to even know the number of hairs on your head. To know you by name. That even in the great big multitude of people that there is, is that Jesus still wants to be close to you and I and still calls us by name. He doesn't just look out on that crowd and say a big multitude of people and that's it. He sees you, you by your name individually because he loves you. And today I want to encourage you this morning that there is a bread for you. There is life. You will never hunger. You will never thirst again because at the table of Jesus, the bread come down from heaven is there. And it's all that we need. In this world, gas prices going high. Wondering how I'm going to make ends meet. Jobs, it's crazy. Things happening. Wars happening. Listen, can I tell you today? All that you and I need is the bread come down from heaven. It is life to the world. 
not just to here, not just to the church, it's life to the world. What Ukraine needs right now, what Russia needs right now, what the U.S. needs right now is the bread come down from heaven because he is life and life more abundantly to sustain our souls. Will you stand with me this morning? Close your eyes with me today. My friend, you're here today and you need life today. Even as I'm talking about life today, you just sense this void inside of you. You sense this place like something is missing, something is lacking there. I remember that feeling. I remember that feeling as a 13-year-old, and I would just begin somehow, uh, from what I knew, I just began to pray things like, Lord, I, I don't know if you hear me, but if you do, please come and love me. Please come and help me. Oh, that feeling of void, that emptiness, boy, it scared me. It left me wondering how am I going to even make it through tomorrow and all the things going on in my life. But then you know God is so faithful. As He promises, call to me in the day of trouble and I will answer you. Just believe. And oh, how God's love rushed over me. And I'm praying the same for you today, that you don't leave here feeling like I didn't get my fill in my soul. But you leave here today knowing I'm not hungry anymore. I'm not trying to find anything in need. I'm not thirsty anymore because God has filled my soul. If that's you today, can I just encourage you? Would you just come to the front today? We'd love to pray with you today. Just love to gather around you and pray because Jesus loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. And at that place, that great table, He has a seat for you. He has a chair for you. There's still room. There's still room. There's still room. This morning, you have need this morning. You have something you need prayer about today. Can just encourage you to come this morning and pray. Call to the Lord. Oh, how God loves you today. It's going to be a great table. It's a table for you and I to sit with the bread come down from heaven. Just come this morning. Come today. Come. Let us pray today. Let us pray. There's life and life in Jesus. Life more abundantly. Oh, God, we thank you today. Oh God, we thank you today. And as we continue to pray.